Father, we want to glorify you. We want this church to glorify you. Everything we do this morning, we want to bring glory to you through the songs that we sing, through the prayers that we pray, and through this time now when we come to your word. Lord, we, we come to your word because we want to hear you speak. We, we know that we need your help and your guidance, and so we come. And so we pray that you would speak to us now and that you'd speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us. And any fears that we have, any anxieties, or anything that may hinder us from hearing your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would just remove that so we could hear what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, we finished up the book of Revelation, and now we're going to look at the book of Ruth, which is... Um, Almost, as, as we go through the book of Ruth, I think you're going to see that it's a different take on a similar situation, and I'll explain that more later. But we're going to focus on Ruth for a little bit, which is kind of, you know, I figured Revelation was pretty heavy, <laughs> and Ruth is a little more uplifting, although um, the story of Ruth in general is uplifting and, and, and helps us look at God in another way, and yet the story does not start off that way. And so I'll read the first five verses and then we'll, we'll dive in. So Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So I have, a, have an uncle who likes to tell stories. He likes to tell stories about me. Not always flattering stories, and, and stories that tend to be morphed and uh, distorted over the years. And so I figured if he's listening on the live stream, I'll clear things up this morning. No. <laughs> but, but there's one story that, that's become rather legendary in our family. Um, it's, it's not very flattering. Um, one of the things that we, we liked to do when I lived in Montana was we liked to tube the river. We lived on um, the Madison River, which is one of these big mountain rivers, it's beautiful. It flowed really fast flowing, and just north of where we lived was a place called um, the Bear Trap Canyon. And so it had, the river ran through and mountains jutted up on both sides with big pine trees. It was gorgeous, and the river ran through it, and we'd, put our, we'd park at this parking area, and we'd drive 
a ways up the river, and we'd put our troops in, and you'd float down with mountains on both sides of you, and it was glorious. And we were doing that with my aunt and uncle, my whole family, and we got to the end of our float, and, and everyone started jumping off of their tubes, trying, um, walking over to the, the cars at the end, and, and I was struggling. And as my uncle tells the story, I was helplessly flailing around in the water about to drown. And everybody was looking from the shore, wondering if I was going to survive. And, and these two little girls even jumped in the river to run out and, and to come save me. And as the moment was building and as the tension was building, my dad yells from the shoreline, It's only six inches deep. Just stand up, you idiot. And I stood up and walked out of the river, letting every, leaving everyone to laugh and uh, looking very foolish. And so, you know, I have to admit, it's a good story. It, it, when I was young, it bugged me. It, I think it's funny. It's gripping. It's not true. <laughs> Parts of it are true. But I wasn't struggling to get out of the river because I thought the water was over my head. I knew the water was shallow. It was definitely deeper than six inches. But I was struggling because the current was so strong. And I was little. I was in fourth or fifth grade. And, and I got out of my tube and I stood up and I thought I had my feet. And this current came and it swept my feet out from under me. And I would float down the river and I'd stand up again and try to walk. And it would sweep my feet out and I'd get pulled down the river again. And I'd stand up and eventually I was able to catch my footing and, and get out, out of the river. But I wasn't strong enough to stand against this mountain stream current. And, and I was thinking about that this week. It's just, it's really tough to do. It's really tough to get your feet in a place when everything is going the opposite direction of where you're trying to go. And, and, and we're experiencing that right now, right? We can, many people feel like there's all of this steam building up in our culture and everything's kind of heading in a direction where many of us don't think things should be going and it's hard to, Get your footing. The current is like this raging river going here, and we're trying to stand still and, and stand in a place, but every once in a while our feet get swept out from under us, and we float down the river a little bit, and then we kind of pick our feet again, and we stand, and then we're, they get swept out, and we get swept down the river toward, with the culture again. And eventually some people stop trying to fight. They think this is just futile. There's no way I'm going to be able to stand up. I'm just going to keep getting swept away down the river, and so they just quit, and they flip over on their back, and they just float down the river with everyone else. And that's actually what we see happening at the beginning of Ruth, uh, which is an interesting place to start if you know the story of Ruth in general. But we're told that it starts off with these kind of ominous words, this, in the days when the judges ruled. Setting the history, when, when the story of Ruth happens, it's happening in the days when the judges ruled, which is not a glorious time in the history of God's people. That this time was characterized by kind of two phrases that happen. And as you read through the book of Judges, you find yourself regularly cringing, going, oh, did, did they really do that? I can't, I can't believe they would ever... Do that. And then you, you see phrases like this and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And you hear that over and over and over again where God's people 
They, they forget about their God. They ignore everything that he's commanded. And they just go off and do what's right in their own eyes. They, they, they worship the other gods. And things don't work out well for them. Or the very last line of the book of Judges. And, and remember, the, the book of Judges is the book that comes right before Ruth. So if you're reading through the Bible in order, the last line you read before you turn to the book of Ruth is this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what characterized the, the culture at the time was this away from God and just doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, doing whatever they wanted to do, and it never worked out for them. They would, they would do that, and then they would find that everything turns into a mess, and there's chaos, and they would say, ah, and they'd cry out to God, and God in his mercy would come and save them, and then they'd, be, they'd go, yay, God, for a little bit, and then they would forget God, and it says they would turn away from God, and then things would get worse than the last time. And so the book of Judges and the period of Judges is really this kind of depressing story of God's people um, spiraling down the toilet, just getting worse and worse and worse. And so we, we read Ruth, and it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. And we think that actually shouldn't surprise us, because throughout the Old Testament, God warned his people that, that if you turn away from me, if you, if you refuse to live the way I've called you to live in the world, things don't go well. And, and if you read in in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you hear all of these beautiful promises that God says, you know, if you live the way I've created you to live, things are going to go well and I'm going to bless you. But if you ignore me and you turn away from me and you live contrary to the way I've designed you, things aren't going to go well. There's going to be curses. And, and one of those is this in Deuteronomy 28. It says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you will serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you. And you'll serve them in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And so th these curses aren't just God being vindictive. It's, a, it's like a discipline of a parent saying, stop doing this. This is bad for you. And so when a parent comes up to their kid and says, stop. Or there's going to be consequences. They're doing that to call that child to repent, to stop, to turn away from it. And so throughout the history of God's people, when a famine comes upon the land, it's really at its core a call to repent. It's a reminder that they have forgotten their God. They've turned away from God. And God's saying, trust me, turn back to me. It's, it's going to be better if you turn back to me. And so it's this call to repentance. And yet, when we open the book of Ruth, so we see it's the time of the judges, we see a famine, and we read, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And so we're given this picture that there's this 
kind of difficult time in the history of God's people of the judges. There's a famine in the land, and now we're shown this family, and we're told that this family's from Bethlehem. This is God's people. They're Ephrathites, which just means they're Bethlehemites. It means the same kind of thing. We've got God's people in Bethlehem, and the dad's name is Elimelech, which means my God is king. And the wife's name is Naomi, which means pleasant. So we've got mom and dad. We've got dad, my God is king, and mom who is just pleasant. And we think, ah, it's a godly, good family. Sadly, the boys' names are not so noble. Um, You could translate them basically as weenie and whiny. (laughs) How would you like to grow up with that name? I don't know. But so they don't have real great, great names. But mom and dad do. And so you're thinking, okay, we've got the judges, we've got the famine, we've got this godly family. How are they going to respond to the famine, right? How are they going to respond to this call to repent and turn to God? And they sadly respond by doing what everyone else was doing. They do what's right in their own eyes. They don't repent and turn back to God. They, they don't trust in God to provide for their needs. They rather take their own, take things into their own hands and they head to Moab. And it says they just planned to sojourn there. We're just going to sojourn there. We're just going to, we're going to hang out here. We're going to look, see if there's some food here. It's not like we're going to stay long. It's not like we're going to live here just for a little bit. But then they got there and they stayed. And we read later, they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. And a little while later it says they lived there 10 years. And it's a picture of, of just the nature of sin, right? We, we know this in our own lives that, that we're, we're always tempted into sin to say, well, just this once. Um, but that turns into, well, only for a little bit. And we become trapped in it. We become enslaved in it. And then 10 years go by and we go, how did I get here? How, how did I get here? I was only planning on just a little bit. And it's interesting because you might say, well, I don't I don't really get the big deal. I mean, there wasn't food in Bethlehem, so they went to Moab. Why why is that such a big deal? But the country of Moab has, it screams godlessness. Uh, The country of Moab is a tribe that started when Lot's daughters got him drunk and slept with their dad and had children with him. And that became the Moabites and the Ammonites. So, like, not a real great way to start off a tribe. It was the Moabites were the ones who hired Balaam, a false prophet, to come and curse God's people so that they would be destroyed. The Moabites were the ones who were so, were one of the tribes who were so wicked that when God's people entered the promised land, they were actually supposed to wipe them out. And it said about the Moabites as well, it said, no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so it's a tribe that was just known by their hatred of God, their rejection of God. And so it's really a big deal when a family of God's people say, I'm not going to trust our God anymore, and I'm going to go to this land and trust them to provide for our needs. Um, 
the famine was sent to them to turn them back to their God. Instead, they ended up actually turning further away from God and going into a, another land. They trusted in, they did what's right in their own eyes, and they took matters into their own hand, and they trusted in themselves, and they trusted in a godless nation to help them. But as they wander around the plains of Moab, things don't work out well, do they? Things don't get better for them. We hear that Elimelech dies, leaving his wife and his children. And the narrator says that, you know, there's some hope here, right? At least Naomi was left with two of her sons. She wasn't completely alone. She had a couple sons with her to care for her, to protect for her, to maybe provide some children. But again, they take matters into their own hands, and weenie and whiny take Moabite wives. One was named Orpah, the other was named Ruth. And again, throughout the Bible, it says this is not what you should do. You should not, you should not marry a godless people, people who do not believe in God because they will take your heart, they'll pull you away from God even further. And so again, this was taking matters into their own hands. And, and you've got to understand, I mean, it's not, it wasn't an easy thing for them. I'm sure they were afraid, right? Their dad had just died. They, they wanted to provide for their family. They were worried that their family was going to go extinct. They wanted to make sure their mom was going to be cared for. And yet, rather than trusting what God said on how to, how to do those things, they took matters into their own hands and they did what was right in their own eyes. And, and immediately after this, after we hear that they married Moabite wives, we hear that both Weenie and Whiny died. So that Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. You know, when she lost her husband, there was hope that at least something's still there for her. Um, but the passage ends on a somber note. She was now left with nothing. She was empty. And the irony of the moment and the irony of what's being laid out here is that they left Bethlehem because there was a famine and they, they wandered in Moab because they wanted to be filled and yet Naomi ends up experiencing her own famine in Moab. She has nothing there. And, and the story is laying out this reminder to all of us that that's what happens when we take matters into our own hands and when we do what's right in our own eyes. It, it never works out well for us, ever. Um, we're not as smart as we think we are, um, and God is a lot smarter than we think he is. And he doesn't give us just capricious commands for no reason. He tells us to live a certain way because that's how it works out well, and, and when, when we do take matters into our own hands and we do just kind of do whatever's right in our own eyes, there's a period of time where we think that things are working out well. We think we did the right thing. Things are going well. We're going to be successful here. But eventually things come crashing down because disobeying God never works. Sin never works. And Scripture tells us over and over that sin always, always leads to death and destruction. Always. And sin always leads to this emptiness that Naomi felt. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of another story that we hear in the Bible that's 
popular, well-known, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, because we have a story there of a son who did what was right in his own eyes and took matters into his own hand, right? He came up to his dad and said, hey, pops, give me my money. And dad gave him his money, and he took it and went off to a foreign land, right? And things seemed to be going well for him, right? He was on easy street. He was loaded. He had friends and parties, and everybody loved him. But then the money ran out, and the friends dried up, and there's this moment where we read, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I mean, that's the same emptiness that Naomi's feeling at that moment. Um, and it's a reminder that's, that the point of both of these stories, the point of this part of both of the stories, that that same emptiness ends up being the result when we take matters into our own hands and when we do what is right in our own eyes. If, if we turn away from God and we just kind of do our own thing, you always end up being left empty and longing for something more. And I, so I was thinking about this story and thinking about our current situation that we're in. Um, I think there's similarities here. Um, I, I don't think, obviously, we're not in a famine of, of sorts, right? There's, we, even, even when COVID broke out and the shelves were empty, there was still lots of food. If you wanted food, you could find food, even though it was kind of shaking to people to see all the shelves so empty. But there was food. But um, I've heard numerous people over the last months, years, talk about this kind of spiritual famine sweeping across the land uh, 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 that we're in. And... Uh, and more than that, and, and I know this is maybe a little more controversial, but I think it's true, um, just like God sends famines to, to people to remind them to repent and turn back to him, God also sends plagues. And uh, I, I, you can get into why COVID came, and I don't, I'm not even saying why, but it's, all it is is it should be a reminder to us that we need to repent and turn back to God. That's been the case. The church has always seen it that way throughout history. And I've also reminded us that throughout Scripture, it reminds, uh, we're told that when a country is given wicked rulers, um, that's a call to repentance as well. And so, and whatever rulers you want to consider wicked, that's fine. I think we all realize that. Whatever side of the map you're on, you think we've got some messed up rulers. And, and so I was thinking this week, the question kind of laying on us is, how many more signs do we need to repent? But I want to be clear. Um, I'm not, sometimes pastors and sometimes even myself, we can say like, we need to repent. And then everybody, including ourselves and everybody in the pew says, yeah, all those people need to repent. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, some do. But that's not the point. When we see these things happening in our country, when we see these things happening to us, it's a call for me to repent. Because let's be honest, if I don't repent, I'm going to end up just like R.C. Sproul Jr., falling into sin, hardened heart. Um, same thing with all of us. It's a call for all of us to repent. And so we, we see these things happening in our time and this story presses on us, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond like Elimelech? 
whose name touts my God is king, but his actions do not show that his God is king. Will we act like a limelack and just keep doing whatever the culture around us is doing? Will we be like a limelack and just try to kind of do whatever's right in our own eyes and take matters into our own hands? Um, this is a reminder, let's not do that. It never ends well for anyone. It ends with us being empty and longing. The answer of Scripture is that we need to repent, each one of us. Um, none of us are, are too holy that there's no sin in our life that we need to repent of. And so we need to be evaluating our lives regularly. I need to be asking myself, where am I doing what's right in my own eyes? You need to be asking yourself, where am I taking matters into my own hands? Where am I not trusting God? And ask God to show that to you. It might be greed. It might be pride, it might be gluttony, it could be sexual sins, it could be just laziness. They're all sin. And they're all sin that we need to turn away from when we see it. And, and the reminder of the story is that when, when, God, when we come to God and we say, help me see my sin, because I want to turn from it, I, I want to repent, I want to follow you, and God shows you sin in your life, the answer isn't to say, I'll do that tomorrow. All right? Because if you do that, then you're going to be just like them. Like, well, we're just going to hang out here for a little bit. And then 10 years later, they go, how did I get here? The answer, when, when God makes, sin, makes you aware of sin in your life, the answer is to repent. Turn away from it. Run away from it as fast as you can and trust in God. And then there's these beautiful promises that come from that. And, and I want to read one from the Old Testament. And I think it's beautiful because it's connected with God's people. It was, it, they, right before this passage that I'm going to read, it's talking about when God's people end up turning away from God, they're going to end up, things aren't going to go well, and they're going to end up in a foreign land where, where there's full of godlessness. But then it says this. But if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive and they repent and plead with you, Lord, in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. And if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive, and they, and they pray toward the land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and they pray to the house that I have built for your name, then, Lord, hear from heaven your dwelling place. Hear their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned. And that's the repeated reminder throughout Scripture. When we repent, when we turn from our sin, we don't turn from our sin to a God who's ready to put the hammer down on us. When we turn from our sin, we turn to a God who says, come, I'll forgive you. I sent my son to die on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. You just got to turn and look to me and say, please, forgive me. If we keep trusting in ourselves, if we keep doing what's right in our own eyes, it will lead to emptiness, it will lead to despair. But we're told that when we repent, when we turn back to God in faith and we trust him, 
for the forgiveness of sins through, through Jesus Christ. Then we're told we have forgiveness, we have life, we have blessing, and we have fullness of life, no matter what happens. And so we're called this morning to repent, but we're also called to believe. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks again for being our God. Lord, if you were like us, you would have gotten rid of us and given up on us long ago. But we're thankful that you are a patient God and you're loving and kind and faithful and that you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, we come to you now and we repent. We know that we all naturally do what's right in our own eyes. We naturally try to take matters into our own hands. We naturally don't trust you. So we ask your forgiveness, Lord. We thank you that we can trust in your forgiveness. And we pray that you would not only just forgive us, but that your spirit would work in each of our hearts and that you would you would help us to trust you more fully help us to to rely on you more fully and help us to live the lives you've called us to live in this world father we help we pray we ask that you would help us stand firm in this current time we know you will do it lord because we trust you and all God's people said, amen. amen.